Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, encouraging you to go to commentarymagazine.com to read just one of the highlights of our December issue, PJ O'Rourke's article, Shamalot, a long examination of a new biography of John F. Kennedy. This piece is ambrosia and nectar mixed together in one of the most delicious stews that we have ever presented to the reading public. So go to commentarymagazine.com where you can subscribe. You'll get our daily content. You can help support this podcast. You can read our magazine. You can get our magazine in your mailbox at home commentarymagazine.com. You know you should do it. Go do it. Thanks very much. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Hey, Christine. So uh, uh, President-elect Joe Biden gave an interview to the New York Times' Thomas Friedman, which is striking for many reasons, not least of which uh, Friedman actually talked to somebody and interviewed somebody who was not a cab driver <laughs> or a Saudi prince or a Saudi prince who was working as a cab driver. So what did the president-elect say? Well, a couple sort of uh, top-line takeaways. Uh, one is that he's trying, he sort of weirdly co-opted the America First rhetoric and is trying to kind of give a new spin on that. Uh, second, as we've all uh, long suspected, with Trump exiting the stage, the need for a new Republican villain will be played by special guest star Mitch McConnell. So there was a lot of uh, attempts to vilify McConnell as the the worst Republican ever now that Trump will no longer be able to wear that crown. But the thing that struck me and the thing that I think does not bode well for the Biden administration was uh, on the issue of how to engage all the people who did vote for Donald Trump, uh, which Friedman asked in a kind of um, roundabout way. Biden's response was to, to resort to um, uh, the platitude that worked for him and, and for a couple of other candidates during the Democratic primaries, which is start talking about rural voters and dignity. So whenever the Trump style voter comes up uh, to Joe Biden, he starts saying, you know, it's really about dignity. It's about how my dad used to pack a lunch and say a man needs dignity and dignity, dignity, dignity. Of course, he's there are two problems with this, um, and they've been a problem for him since the primary. He mistakes dignity and respect. He kind of uses them interchangeably when they're really not interchangeable terms. And it ends up coming across as both condescending and ineffective at the same time. If you're someone who, and as a practical matter, when pushed on it by Friedman, Biden talk, started talking about expanding Obamacare. This is what the rural voter needs, is an expansion of Obamacare so somehow new hospitals can be built and then they'll get jobs there. The condescension was vast. The solution was inexplicable. And it didn't address the primary cause here, which is the reason for this polarization in the first place. And that is a lot of what we were talking about yesterday, kind of the elite attitude towards people who aren't like them. So I worry a little bit going forward how that's going to play out as a both as a as a rhetorical matter and a policy matter for the Biden administration. And I have yet to see him either have as advisors or as potential cabinet appointees anyone who can speak to that population. So that was that that was the thing that struck me the most about the interview. Yeah, I think it's a good point because even the formulation, the idea that uh, we need to treat this group with dignity, sort of establishes them as um, uh, something other. Uh, you know, something else that that is apart from us that we need to recognize. Um, it, it is it is a completely um, it's 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 a weird polarizing way to look at a huge swath of the country. I mean, it, it, it has a quality. You know, it was the you know, the great mistake that Barack Obama made in 2008 that ended up being the greater mistake that Hillary Clinton made in 2012 which was, you know, she did the deplorables thing, right? And he did the bitter clingers thing. And, you know, it was a private fundraiser remark was leaked, you know, where he said, you know, these people who don't vote for us, they're clinging to their guns and their religion. Uh, and the purpose of saying it was not to, was to explain them. Like he was his mother, a cultural anthropologist, going through the wilds of Yahoo territory, spotting the mysterious white snark and, and, and exclaiming as to its plumage, you know, it's a, it was a sort of a fascinating, so this is a, this is a tendency on the, 
you know, on the left or sort of among the liberal left as, as the parties have become, you know, regionally and kind of, I don't know how to describe it, sort of, you know, urban, rurally polarized to say, look, you got to understand these people. Like, I know you hate them, but don't hate them. Well, and the condescension from Biden is particularly acute when I hear it because he runs on, on, he runs on kind of, I was one of you guys. I'm just like you. I was, I was not raised with wealth and privilege. And now look at me, right? It's this, there's a kind of, why aren't you at this level of achievement? It's, it's a weird sort of thing. And the other thing is it's a huge missed opportunity to talk about things like self-reliance, entrepreneurship, community, the kinds of things that actually people go to rural areas if they're not from there to find. They find a way of, uh, accomplishing things both in the in the sort of economic realm and in the civic realm that don't require the government constantly pandering to them or giving them handouts or that sort of thing. So I think that whole rhetoric of uh, th- there's a missed opportunity for him to bring people together by saying, look, we we've the, if anything, the pandemic has shown us that there there is a need for that kind of ingenuity, self reliance, and then to talk about how we all can reach that depending on what skill set we bring to the table. But he just completely whiffed on that one. I think he bunted on that entirely because it's easier to talk in abstractions like dignity and hope and all the stuff that the Democrats have been doing for 12 years. Well, Noah, so if we look at this, when Biden is talking about dignity in this way or sort of isolating the population of voters who hate him or, you know, hate Democrats or whatever and say, no, 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 we really need to treat them with dignity. Is that code for we're trying to figure out a way to make to to provide them with the sorts of things that will encourage their dependency on us and where they will give us credit for figuring out ways to give them things so that they will feel beholden to us or feel grateful to us for giving them the things that make them dependent on us. Maybe. Um, I think it's probably going to sound a little cynical, but I, I do think that's part of what Donald Trump was offering in 2016 was a, 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 a compassionate conservatism without the compassion. Um, it was just a, a it was that kind of much more active, um, beneficent government that uh, did was not afraid uh, of uh, handouts and was not afraid to subsidize constituents that it was um, that it re- regarded as particularly either deserving or uh, important politically, but it wasn't. It was absent any kind of condescension, um, which is what you're hearing from Joe Biden. It wasn't. It, it wasn't empathy. It was aggression. It was grievance. It was payback, and that's the sort of thing that resonated. Um, and what drew this constituency, I believe, in my view, towards Trump's movement and why, even if you offer the precise same policies, absent the tonal aggression that was uh, sort of indicative of Donald Trump's movement, I don't think it'll have the same appeal. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about Trump, this is also something we alluded to yesterday, is that while he offered this, he, he presented this as an opportunity, right, the compassionate conservatism without the compassion, uh, what ended up, there was a rising tide that ended up lifting all boats. We talked about this, you know, increase in uh, household, you know, income, um, the first sustained increase in household income in this century for people in every quintile, but particularly in the, in the, in the lower two quintiles. And, um, and that was done through conventional Republican means, as far as we know, you know, first, you know, sort of, deregulation, tax cutting, uh, the release of animal spirits because people were, people in business were less fearful of the heavy hand of democratic centralized government. And there was a real response uh, in the sort of macro economy. Uh, The things that Trump promised, which were like, I'm not going to cut your social security. I'm not going to cut your Medicare. I mean, he didn't, obviously. Not that anybody would have but but yeah, but in the end uh, what he delivered was what any was what any republican administration in some sense w- would have delivered economically 
To some extent, um, that's a generalized extent. Except for the tariffs. In a more particular extent, right, there was industrial policy in the form of tariffs, which were protective of domestic industries. And that's not unrepublican per se, if you want to go back to George W. Bush's tire tariffs, which were a spectacular disaster. But nevertheless, an an effort to protect certain industries domestically, which is what Joe Biden talked about in that interview very specifically. And also um, farmers, subsidies for, um, for agriculture. Um, none of which you could say you could call particularly conservative. You might call it Republican, but those are two distinct things. Right. Um, well, I, yeah. I just want to say, I think the uh, the gap for Biden um, and uh, rural Americans is unbridgeable because um, what Noah's describing is, is basically that um, Trump spoke for a large number of them um, and Biden cannot do that, regardless of whatever his policies are. And the policies that he talked about in the Friedman interview amount to a kind of, he hopes for a kind of um, sort of protection payment. You know, if he sort of gives them these things, uh, they will, they won't, uh, they won't, you know, uh, show up at his, you know, doorstep. Um, But regardless of that, he can't speak for them because the Democrats have to speak in the uh, language and the, the rhetoric of sort of coastal identitarianism. Um, and that is the stuff that that turns uh, those voters' stomachs. Right. Well, I think that that's the interesting uh, political question going forward. So there's all this talk about why did Trump do better among uh, Hispanic voters, right? And have that experience in uh, Southern Florida and on the, along the Rio Grande Valley. Not by the way that he did better among Hispanic voters than, say, George W. Bush did in 2004, because in fact, Bush did better. And so this is a, there's a kind of weird fantasy going on on the right where, where, where uh, Trump is, you know, creating a new multi-ethnic coalition. Well, you know, Bush got 30, somewhere between 35 and 40% of the Hispanic vote in 2004, which is better than Trump did. So, um, you know, there, there's a silliness at work here. Uh, in that regard. But what you could say in that circumstance is to the extent that you have Hispanic sort of uh, striving, striving to the middle class Hispanic voters who liked Trump's message and liked the increase in income and all of that, it's that he delivered for them, or maybe they thought that he delivered for them. And so they went for him. Uh, and that is Biden's, that is ultimately Biden's challenge in expanding the democratic footprint if he can do so or you know doing better for which is he's got to life has got to get better for people over the next 4 years i mean in the end that is what presidencies are about trump ended up running for reelection in a terrible year where terrible things happened um and you know he he did he did better than a lot of people thought that he might in some ways i mean he did he got a per se was a, he he gained a percentage point on himself from 2016 he got 10 or 11 million more votes while biden got you know appears like 18 million more votes than hillary clinton did so he did better biden did better uh but you know he 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 has there was reason to think that he had delivered on he, a general promise to try to make life better for you know for for americans and that's Biden's challenge here too. And then the question is, can the can the panoply of issues facing Biden can will he be able to deliver on some of that, or will the identitarian politics, will the culture war of the left? We keep talking about the culture war on the right. Will the obsession with culture war on the left either blur that if it happens or 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 become so transfixing to the democratic coalition that it's all that will matter and that they will therefore you know for example depending on how how determined they are to make huge changes to affect you know climate change which will have a depressive economic effect despite this notion that it'll be fantastic because we'll create green new jobs you know well that was actually one another thing that i saw a huge missing element in this interview was another opportunity biden could have had to signal that he understood that whatever the results at the top of the ticket 
down ballot Republicans did much better than they were expected to do. And what that will mean for whatever agenda he does have, and particularly in, in foreign policy, too, because a lot of that interview is about foreign policy, which we should probably talk yeah, about. We can't move on. Yeah. without. He, did, he really did not. All he did is talk about McConnell obstructing COVID relief, which isn't even true. Nancy Pelosi has been obstructing COVID relief. So there was no recognition of how the dynamic has shifted in Congress, which he will need to. All he talked about was how, oh, they love me there. McConnell and I have worked together. They love me. I know it. I know it. That's not enough, given the numbers that the it, that the Democrats have in the House right now. He did reiterate the Democratic position, which was that there needs to be a bailout for states associated with this next relief package. And absent that, there's no movement. That's the Democratic position, um, be it as it may. But um, we can't really move on without right. talking about but the But we Iran need to, bill. we will not, we will not move on, but I need to take a break to talk to you about today's first sponsor, the Bonson Group. Look, I'm, I'm let me just, sh- let me just tell it straight, okay? The vast, majority of professional financial and investment advice is awful. Most financial advisors are lazy, disengaged, and uninterested in the real work that is required of properly stewarding their clients' assets. I mean, I have it on good record that a very high percentage of those making a very good living as a, quote, professional wealth advisor, unquote, do not work more than 25 hours a week. Get into the more important stuff, their understanding of how markets work, the intersection of public policy with investing, the relevance of monetary policy and the Fed and modern finance. And you may as well be talking to a teenage kid at a Starbucks or something. In summary, the work ethic and the intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leave a lot to be desired. And that is not the case with the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over 2.5 million billion, excuse me, 2.5 billion in assets under management, where every single day is an intellectual journey where client communications are a way of life, where every bit of their perspective on the economy and capital markets is their own fresh resource and opinion, and where every client is given his own bespoke family office experience. Read the Bonson Group's weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com, and you can read their daily market updates at the DCToday.com. I do. I am not, this is not, you know, my field particularly, and I have to tell you that I find these incredibly illuminating and helpful to understanding what happens when you hear that it says, you know, the market went up 200 points or went down 300 points or whatever. So check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. Check out DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. Okay, Noah, let us talk about Biden and Iran and Biden and foreign policy. Yeah, so um, between Iran and, and China, those appear to be his two um, major priorities, which I maintain is also leaves out, this is a digression, but it is necessary to note that there's a very conspicuous absence of Russia in this guy's foreign policy, we were told for the last four years that America has been sacrificing all its interests in deference to Russia, and yet nobody seems to care anymore that we did all this. Where's the agenda on Russia? Anyway, I digress. Um, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, we have friends, um, notably uh, the very astute Eli Lake, who has uh, been, and I've been willing to defer to, to an extent to his judgment on this, that Joe Biden has caveated his desire to re-enter the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, with the the understanding that it, it was has to be predicated on full compliance by Iran. We enter into compliance again, they enter into compliance again, and then we're all in there. And, um, people like Eli have said, you know, that's probably not going to happen. It's just there's too, there's, there's too, too much has happened in the interim for them to go back to the status quo 2015. I think that that compliance thing goes right out the window when they need it to. And I think we got some evidence of that in this interview because he didn't talk at all. Well, we should define compliance, define what you, what the word compliance means here. Well, you're going back into my memory banks here, but it had a lot to do with the enrichment levels and an inspection regime, which the AI inspection regime was the toughest inspection regime that has ever, ever been conceived of. Um, But 
it was full of holes at the time. And not talking about the inspections regime suggests to me that they don't really care about the inspections regime. And again, I'm going back in my, in my memory banks here. But my understanding was that this was they had access to like 18 declared nuclear sites and no military sites. They were reliant on foreign partners for satellite imagery. They didn't have access to places like Parchin. And um, and there were quite a few indications that there were nuclear stockpiles that were not on offer to inspectors. And we found out after this Israeli operation, I think it was 2017, 2018, that uncovered this cache of nuclear documents that they had been maintaining this cache in order to restart this program, much of which was only mothballed. You had these centrifuges in Fordo that could have been just switched on like a light switch. Right. Okay. Um, the, the regime right. itself was porous as a sieve. And that was the problem. People who said, well, Iran is in full compliance with the Iran nuclear deal. How, what's your real problem with that? The real problem is that the compliance regime that you constructed was inadequate. That was the argument that was made by Iran deal uh, opponents. And it, it continues to be the argument that, that we make. And it seems to me as though the predicate for just abandoning any concern about Iran, Iranian compliance is well established when they need, when they need it to be. Um, I found this part so worrisome, uh, this part of the interview, because uh, you have to remember how this deal was struck initially uh, during the Obama administration with John Kerry going to Vienna over and over again, being turned down repeatedly by Tehran because the the, the Tehran knew how desperate um, the Obama administration was for a deal. So so Kerry kept layering on goodies and making it easier and easier to get some for it didn't even have to be the same version of the deal that uh, uh, American officials had in, in, in their minds and in, in their hands. Actually, there were separate pieces of paper floating around. But Kerry kept going back just to get them to say something that resembled a yes to a deal. And the result was just, you know, huge pallets of cash. And um, just this, you know, which is and this terrible deal, which is why uh, critics of the deal say it was such a bad deal, because it was, it was such a bad deal because we were far too desperate to get it. So the Iranians know that the Obama Biden team <clears throat> is um, our pushovers when it comes to this to get them back to a deal after this um, means and with with the Iranians knowing um, the way the 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 team that will be involved is is going to approach us, it's going to be an even worse deal. We're going to see that again, but it's going to be worse because the Biden the the Biden administration is going is going to come at them with this um, sort of. We now have to um, also make up to you. You know, we have to we have to make it easier on you because of the troubles of the last four years you faced. Yeah, what was the only the only condition that I saw him impose was a desire to re-engage in negotiations in order to extend the timelines, the original timeline at sunset after 10 years. So we have to get back to a new sunset somewhere off in the distance. But also after that, after we've got the, the nuclear deal together, then we go back to the table and we talk about, you know, the proxies that are waging war on American soldiers all across the region and, you know, your your intercontinental ballistic missile program, all that stuff. We'll get to it later. The the fact that that was an afterthought to Biden is what struck me and, uh, on that portion. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, those proxies. We'll, we'll deal with that. I mean, it makes in the whole sunset provision, their sunset, their sunset's going to be a mushroom cloud. Like they really are not thinking through where what what the Iranian regime's mindset is right now. And I think Abe's absolutely right. They're going to have to really sweeten the deal. And it was already way too sweet. So it's, it is worrisome. And, and no mention of Israel in there, as far as I recall. Not a single mention of Israel. No, what, what there was one mention, and it was to, re, to include Israel and regional partners like Saudi Arabia and the UAE in these, in these negotiations. Um, However, that would work. I don't, th- he, I, he, I don't think he mentioned Israel. Yeah, no, remember I'm looking, the Saudi I'm looking at it right now. No, yeah. he says Iran, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, France, Germany, the European Union, and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Okay, my brain filled yeah. in Israel as a <laughs> right. key regional asset. It should right. have been there, but was not. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, and then and then there's China, and interestingly enough, he says he is not going to lift, or he he is going to expect the Chinese to continue to abide by the deal that they struck with the Trump administration to sort of spend $200 billion in the United States by the end of next year. 
spend an extra 200 $200 billion. Um, uh, that was the Friday approach to China. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, uh, which, you know, is interesting because as, as I guess, Christine, as you started with, um, there is an evocation of buy American America first stuff in the rhetoric that he adopts here. He wants, you know, he needs things to be made here. Right. Uh, so he, he, there is a, there is a change, you know, this was, they're not going to go with internationalism, open internationalism, except in the sense that we need to work with our allies and partners. Right. He is basically saying, uh, you know, we need things to be made in the United States. And I'm, I'm looking for the quote here uh, as we're speaking. I apologize. But, um, uh, yeah, the you know, we need to get our allies on the same page. But uh, I'm not going to make any immediate moves. The same applies to the tariffs. And... Uh, you so know, he's uh, talking about stealing, about they're stealing intellectual property. I want to make sure we're going to fight like hell by investing in America first, energy, biotech, advanced materials, and, and AI. I'm not going to enter any new trade agreement with anybody until we have made major investments here at home and in our workers and in education. And what strikes me about this and him using this rhetoric is this is the lesson of 2016 to the Democrats, right? Which is that uh the uh the pacific trade agreement and trade agreements in general killed them it, they killed them in the upper midwest they killed them and they are going to stay the hell away from them and uh that's interesting because that really does fly in the face of uh, a certain type of liberal establishmentarianism like what are they going to do if they're not going to negotiate trade agreements but it's it's window dressing right so he's stocking his administration with people who still believe in those agreements and who still want to pursue that right but he's talking in the language of we're now the labor party again like we have we're building this labor coalition it's the way they introduced janet yellen of all people i mean they're talking about themselves as if like we're the party of the working men we care about all these things america first you know signaling to their 2016 lessons learned message we care but there's no way that the people that they are putting in power to implement policies are going to do those. They are definitely headed back in the direction that we saw under the Clinton slash Obama internationalist trade years, as far as I can tell, unless I'm wrong. I, I, I mean, they're not talking that way, but they should be. Um, one of the things that both po- political coalitions don't seem to have really internalized over the course of the Trump era is the spectacular cha- sea change in American opinion when it comes to foreign trade. Over the course of the Trump era, from actually over the course of the last eight years, beginning in about 2012, trade was viewed modestly negatively, a threat to the economy by most people. Today, only 18% of people, according to Gallup in February, said the same. 80% of Americans viewed foreign trade as a, quote, opportunity for economic growth through increased U.S. exports. Donald Trump has had a profoundly good effect on how people view foreign trade, open trade deals, and neither political coalition is talking like that. They haven't caught up with public sentiment. Well, and that's a very interesting point. And I don't really know what to what to make of it, except that when when a Democrat talks about the dangers of trade and buying American, that is a sop to the labor unions. When Republicans talk about it, it's a sop to a certain type of neo isolationism. Uh, and, and, uh, but that's, and, that's your favorite analogy. That's Plato's cave, right? Yeah. They're, they're beholden to a political coalition that Donald Trump put together. And they're afraid of what's on the other side of that because it's unknown, but right. it's not really unknown. It's a status quo ante. Absolutely. Okay. So let me take another break and talk to you about our second sponsor today, Gabby insurance. You know you're probably overpaying on car and home insurance, right? I mean, sure, you'd love to save money, but you're spending hours on your own shopping for a lower rate to maybe save a few bucks worth it. Probably not. So do what so many people have done and use Gabby. That's G-A-B-I. Gabby does all the work for you in just a few minutes. And get this, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. 
like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Like I mentioned earlier, Gabby's customers save $961 per year on average. I bet that'd be nice to have in your pocket every year. If they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there and they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. You're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. See how much Gabby can save you. It's totally free to check and there's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash commentary. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash commentary gabby.com slash commentary um so uh the the most intriguing uh and potentially horrifying story of the last couple of months sort of floated out last night uh, with news that a judge had unsealed uh a mostly redacted document um, that suggested that an investigation was going on at the department of justice into an offer of a uh, a bribe for pardon scheme in the federal prison system that a prisoner using a middleman went to the White House to plead for a pardon, pardon possibly you know uh, in in promises of campaign contributions, uh, and that's all we know. And we, for example, so we don't know any more than that, except that one of the reasons that it was unsealed is that uh, perhaps it was a lawyer, 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 client privilege did not work in this case because there was a third party involved, some kind of a middleman who must have gone to the White House with the offer that then triggered the investigation. Now, it's important to note that when we look at this, that somebody told them that it was happening, that could be that whoever was approached with the offer instantly went to the justice department not that you know they were like oh yeah give us the money you know all of that um well the the, the justice department said that no um government official is the target of investig of the investigation right exactly so in this case what that means is that there was some kind of offer proffered and somebody did the right thing so it's less it's less thrilling and exciting than Obviously, the the, uh, the the first effect of seeing this was, oh, my God, someone's selling pardons out of the White House. Um, particularly with all this panic that Trump's going to pardon everybody, he's going to pardon his family, pardon himself, he's going to pardon Rudy, he's going to pardon, you know, uh, Gil and Maxwell, he's going to pardon everybody, you know, uh, everybody on earth uh, out the door. Um you know he may or he may not, and uh, and uh, that's just you know terrible that he'll he'll do that kind of thing because you know nobody has ever pardoned bad people before, like say Mark Rich. Mark Rich, <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> well, and remember, uh, it was that was also what what Al- and Roger Clinton. By the way, Roger Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, pardoned his own brother. So uh, and it wasn't just the pardon when Clinton left office. There was a huge scandal, not just about the Mark Rich pardon, which I will say to the Democrats' credit, there was a lot of bipartisan disgust with that. But he and Hillary received massive numbers of gifts in kind, like money, you know, things that like covering free rent and free rent space in New York, all kinds of really shady stuff that they then had to disavow. And, you know, then their foundation, they basically just, you know, funneled everything through the foundation then. But it was really, it was really unseemly in a way that I think people have, have forgotten. And uh, the outrage again on the right about if, if this is indeed what the Trump administration is doing should be just as vehement as, as those of us who condemned. Well, Clinton if it happens, it hasn't if it happened happens, yet. Right. So, right. Okay. I'm fascinated by the pardon story because it gives me a chance to remind people of one of the most interesting stories, uh, transitional stories in American, modern American political history, a totally forgotten story out of Tennessee in the 1970s um, when a remarkable (coughs) hardscrabble woman named Marie Rajani uh, who was a Democratic activist, single mother of three in her late twenties, or you know, managed uh, after uh, being an, ab- an abusive marriage to uh, get herself an education, uh, <clears throat> became a kind of Democratic Party activist around Nashville, around Vanderbilt, <clears throat> and got herself a job uh, 
uh, in the in the Bureau of in the sort of uh, criminal justice system in Tennessee on dealing with uh, the pardon process, uh, a kind of patronage job. And she discovered there that pardons were being sold, that she noticed that um, a lot of wealthy white people arrested for all kinds of white collar things and drug use or drug whatever were kind of getting off or getting pardoned or getting released. <clears throat> and she went to her superiors and said, what's going on? You know, I, I need to point this out to you. And they said, shut up, go back to your desk and sit down and be quiet. And she was a very, as, as certain types of whistleblowers really are, she was a very ornery person who had been through a lot in her life. And she wasn't like this, she wasn't gonna, this got her hackles up. And eventually she brought down the governor of Tennessee, Ray Blanton, <clears throat> who was a sort of a Democrat, glad-handing uh, Democrat, uh, three senior officials in his uh, administration were uh, indicted. Two of them were convicted for the selling of pardons. I think it was like 53 pardons. And uh, Blanton decided not to run for re-election because, for obvious reasons, and then as a kind of giant middle finger to everybody, pardoned dozens of people in his last announced his intention to pardon dozens of people in his last days in office. And the um, state legislature moved up the inauguration of the incoming governor, Lamar Alexander, now this year retiring after, from, from the U.S. Senate, um, so that uh, these pardons could not be affected because they, they were sort of in the works and he had to sort of sign off on them or whatever Blanton did. And they moved up, uh, they basically moved up the date on which uh, Alexander was going to be sworn in so that the pardons could not be effectuated. And then three years later, Blanton went to jail for having sold some other government emolument for, for, for a bribe. Um, the most interesting long, the, the, co the interesting comic thing that happened here, not comic at all, but sort of interesting is that a movie was made out of this with Sissy Spacek called Marie came out in 1985. It's a pretty good movie, but it's largely forgotten now. And, uh, the last third of the movie is this trial. She sued, personally sued Blanton. And uh, she needed a lawyer to represent her. And, uh, of course, who would want to sue the governor? And, you know, like a state like Tennessee, it's a small town. Nashville's a small town in this sense. And people wouldn't want to get crosswise of the governor. And so she needed a lawyer to represent her. And she found one. And his name was Fred Dalton Thompson. Uh, Fred Thompson, who had been an aide to Howard Baker, the senator from Tennessee, and the minority counsel on the on the water on the Senate Watergate Committee, uh, and he was then had, he was like a, a guy hung out a shingle in 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 Nashville trying to make his way as a successful lawyer, and he took Marie Rajani's case on, and they won, and uh, so the last of the movies about Fred Thompson's the trial that he ran and uh, they were casting the movie in Nashville and they had all these local actors come in to, you know, audition and they didn't like any of them. And Lynn Stallmaster, the casting director turns to Thompson and says, do you want to, do you want to audition? Like, uh, why don't you, you know, why don't you, why don't you read for the part? Just go, and 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 Thompson said, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, why not? Just give it, you know." And he said, uh, "Okay." He said, "Let me take a walk around the block, get my head together." So he walks around the block and he comes back, and he reads a scene with Sissy Spacek, and is cast to play himself in the movie, and of course, then becomes one of the foremost character actors. In Hollywood, Hunt for Red October, No Way Out, playing basically a variety of government officials and all of this. And it is Fred Thompson's fame as a as an actor that leads to him ending up being 
elected to the Senate from Tennessee uh, after he was one of the co-stars on Law and Order as the as the district attorney. And uh, that is the story of the career of Fred Thompson all out of because Ray Blanton was a corrupt, glad-handing, old-time Southern Democrat, like one of the last, uh, you know, he was one of the last old-timey, down-home, corn-pone, you know, machine, you know, and why why do you do it? Why do you sell part? Because you can't. Why wouldn't you sell a pardon? Everybody did it. He did it. Everyone else did it. And uh, and the transition from Blanton to Alexander then was also the birth of the New South. This is the famous, you know, sort of where Nashville, Tennessee became a state where that became friendly to investment. Saturn opened a plant there. Federal Express started there and all of that. And that's the that's that pardon story. And I love that story. Thompson, I... I, I I wrote a profile of Thompson in the early '90s for Esquire that ended up uh, not getting published because it was spiked between uh, between editors. Um, but um, but it was interesting because Thompson said to me, uh, "People ask me how do you become a character actor? Like, how do I have a career like yours?" And he said, "Well, here's what you do: go a stand in the middle of a field and see if you can get hit by lightning." Because that's what happened to me. I was like, you know, I was I was 41 years old, you know. Like, how did it happen? It happened because it was a total fluke, freak of nature. So that is my that is my pardon story. Anyway, does anybody have anything interesting to say about the pardons? Well, we don't. The mystery. It's a mystery person, right? We've all been guessing who it is, and I don't know. Does anybody? I I thought it would be Gislaine Maxwell, but you. It, okay, so here's what we know because of the because of the redactions. We know because the name is redacted significantly during the document. Whoever the whoever the 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 felon is, uh, that it's five or six. The name is five or six characters long. You can sort of tell that from the length of the black mark. So it can't be Gill and Maxwell because Maxwell is too long a name. No. And then I then thought, what if it's Bill Cosby? <laughs> right? Because I was thinking like who. And why would you, you know, like that? But he's not in a federal prison, so it's not right. Bill Cosby. Uh, then people thought there was a, there's a certain guy who was about to go to jail, a, a, a finance who was a briber, uh, sort of like a, a Trumpian financier type. But he hasn't gone to jail yet. And, and uh, some of this is in, uh, material that came out of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which means that whoever whoever is the attempted briber theoretically is in the federal prison system right now and Cosby is in a state prison in Pennsylvania. So my 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 fantasy did not come true. I had a whole thing it was like what if Kim Kardashian was the one who was proffering the message, you know, about this. Well well it's it's going to be juicy who whoever it would be juicy whoever it is because it's someone with connections and money. You know, so it's not yep. it's not a, you know, yep. random everyday prisoner. Yeah, and remember that, you know, the federal prison system is not, you know, it's not like there are tens of billions of people in the federal prison system or with money. <laughs> you know, there aren't that many, actually. So, uh, oh, well, what, 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 uh, what, what is there? What is there to be said, except that's a. We can a, just a, assume a, it's not a worthy person. <laughs> right. <laughs> not right. a worthy person. Right. But the question is despite the fact that the Justice Department has said that, that, um, they're not targeting um, anyone in the government with the as a as as the tar- target of the investigation. Um, I wonder what sort of um, hysterics this is going to unleash. Nonetheless, you know about right. Up, oh, they've got Trump now. Uh, look, I mean, it, it's interesting because because uh, you know the president, the president's pardoning power is absolute. Uh, the president is not allowed to accept, you know, emoluments. Uh, you are not allowed to accept uh, gifts in exchange for services. Um, but of course, it's not clear what, you know. First of all, Trump didn't do it, or there's, you know, as as we say, like there's no 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 federal official is a target of the investigation. Um, it's not clear what you can do to a president, by the way, because the pardon power is absolute. It's in the Constitution, and there, it is unqualified. Um, well, what you can do is you can't impeach, impeach him. him. But I, he, it's my it's my understanding. I, I could be wrong, but I have a, a vague recollection of discussions 
about bribery in exchange for a pardon being talked about at the constitutional convention. Right. It's either that or it's in the Federalist Papers. Like very no, explicitly no. that that exchange. It is, but something that, the founders but by the way, were really afraid of. That was the that was the argument against the unlimited presidential pardoning power. But um, th- this goes. This is a this is a matter of, of of this is one of these things that dates back to English common law. That there needed the idea was that the justice system is porous, and that there needed to be a final appeal to the king, essentially, right to to basically say uh, that. You know, even through the jury process and twelve jury and all this that all that stuff that that an, a terrible injustice could slip through, and that there needed to be a one last chance to you know for someone not 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 to essentially be put to death for 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 a for a terrible crime. Uh, I don't think we really imagine getting f- Mark Rich out, uh, you know, or you know something like that but you know and there are pardons that i i find uh that are very moral and noble uh, including a couple that uh like the pardon of scooter libby which is one of the ones that 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 trump has done that was that was appropriate stuart was, uh scooter libby did not do what he was charged with doing and was convicted uh on the basis of something else a kind of trumped up charge and he uh should not have been convicted, and Bush should have pardoned him and commuted his sentence instead, and Trump ultimately pardoned him, and I think that was a that was a noble thing to do. But I don't really think that that was what the what the founders were were thinking of in terms of the pardon power. Um, let me step back and talk to you about our final sponsor today, Headspace. You've been hearing me talk about Headspace. You know you've probably tried meditation before and maybe it didn't work for you or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong but if mental health is part of your self-care plan you owe it to yourself to try headspace uh it's the app that it's a guided meditation app a pocket-sized guide to help you sleep focus act be better and if you have 10 minutes headspace can change your life i don't know who needs to hear this but here you go you deserve to feel better than you do today and you can with headspace they make meditation simple. You don't need to spend a ton of money to reconnect with yourself. You can start to improve nearly aspect of your life with your phone and a little headspace. Ten minutes a day make a world of difference. For a mood-boosting workout, check out Headspace. Just 30 days of Headspace lowers stress by 32%, and just four sessions can reduce burnout for 14 by 14%, and just imagine that you're being chased by the ambulance that you hear outside my window. That would be very upsetting, and you could maybe use Headspace. So check out the Wake Up Daily original content intended to inspire your day from the moment you wake up. It can even help you tune into the moment with focus music, specially curated by Headspace Chief Music Officer John Legend. Check the numbers. Four weeks of Headspace can increase focus by 14%, and only three weeks of use has been shown to cut aggression to negative feedback by a whopping 57%. Headspace.com slash commentary. This is the best deal out there. Headspace.com slash commentary, code word commentary. Thanks to Headspace for sponsoring the commentary podcast. All right. So in our final discussion today, we have... Attorney General William Barr becoming part of the deep state. Abe. Well. Noah. Deep state. Bill Barr. Can you believe it? Yeah, there was, um, this is another fun one from the Calm the Heck Down files, which have been building for the last couple of weeks. A lot of consternation when um, the Justice Department took this issue on, the notion that there would be voter fraud. And, uh, you know, half a dozen of the usual suspects wrote op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times speculating about how this was this, this insidious plot. And, the, you know, Bill Barr, this supreme example of a Trump loyalist with no allegiances to the kind of uh, patriotic deference that we expect of somebody who occupies this position would engage in some nefarious activity behind the scenes to, uh, I guess, overturn the election or at least establish the predicate for some sort of uh, 
insurrectionary sentiment among the, the people. And what does he do? He comes out yesterday and says, now nah, there's, we don't have any evidence of fraud, uh, not evidence of fraud sufficient to overturn any state level uh, election results. So that's pretty much over. He had another, he gave, you know, the Trump wing, a sort of a sop with the establishment of a special counsel. The Durham probe is now going to be a special counsel, which will outlast this administration and make it much more difficult for, for the Joe Biden administration to dissolve it. And it is incumbent on all of us not to prejudge that because just like the Mueller probe, it's probably going to end up being far narrower in scope. It suggests that they're looking into law enforcement and there was probably some, we already know about some untoward um, stuff that was done during the the Russia investigation leading into the Mueller probe by law enforcement. And they're probably going to find, a lot of them are going to find themselves the, uh, the, the wrong end of this special counsel probe. But nevertheless, it's, probably not going to satisfy anybody who expects some sort of an earth shattering revelation to come out just like the Mueller probe didn't then, but we should reserve judgment because we don't know what's going to happen. And everybody who prejudges these things has egg on their face anyway. Nevertheless, um, n- very narrow moves, very, uh, the sort of thing that really doesn't satisfy anyone who expected earthquakes out of the justice department. Um, and so I look forward to all the uh, the humbled retrospectives on all these you know assessments of how this was a major threat to the republic, and we're going to get a lot of people who are going to be um, you know very very um, mortified by their prejudgments, and they're going to say, "Mea culpa, I'll 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 do better next time." Right? Um, I want to talk about the other uh, shoe, right, which is uh, Trump loyalists basically turning on Barr. Uh, you know, Bill Mitchell, who famously said, what was it? The the ground game was in our hearts all the time in 2016. And, st- you know, saying saying that uh, Barr was like a lizard creature of the deep state. And most appallingly, I think, Roger Stone, who said he's the blocking tackle for the deep state. He said yesterday. Now, Roger Stone had his sentence commuted uh, by Bill Barr. And, um, and in a hearing, uh, you know... Uh, uh, the, the House Judiciary Committee, I believe, uh, had a hearing in January at which Hank Johnson, the congressman from Georgia, like went after Barr, went after Barr's jugular on the grounds that Stone Stone's sentence should not have been commuted. And, and, and Barr, yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't know if you were just about to say, but it, it didn't. Barr is the one who sort of looked at the the sentencing recommendations and said this is um, preposterous, right? Yeah, he said flatly that he had acted independently. It was not he was not working. He was not doing the president's bidding. He said, "quote I agree the president's friends don't deserve special breaks, but they also don't deserve to be treated more harshly than other people. And sometimes that's a difficult decision to make, especially when you know you're going to be castigated for it." And then Hank Johnson said, "I know your story, but I'm asking my question." Barr said, "I'm telling my story. That's what I'm here to do." Johnson yelled at him and said, you're carrying out Trump's will. And then Barr said, let me ask you, do you think it's fair for a 67-year-old man to be sent to prison for seven to nine years? Okay, so at a nationally televised hearing that ended up doing some damage to his reputation, Barr hotly defended the commutation of Starr's sentence. And what does he get, excuse me, uh, Stone's sentence. And what does he get for it? He gets trashed by Roger Stone, who is a piece of human garbage. He is a piece of human garbage. And, and you know, for that alone, for, you know, for for playing this game, when he owes Barr plenty, just all he had to do was forbear, but he couldn't do it because he is a piece of human garbage. That's all I got. He's not that. alone. He's not alone in the list of human garbage no. that we have to excoriate today. Okay, please, uh, please let us conclude with another. I mean, maybe not as bad, or maybe worse. I don't know. Go ahead. No, he's pretty bad. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> Donald Trump's first national security advisor, uh, General Michael Flynn, who is treated abominably by law enforcement. Um, and has been exonerated duly um, for the the alleged crimes that he was accused of, um, is nevertheless a very bad person who exhibits terrible judgment, who has always done so, 
who has uh, sold himself out to America's adversaries, um, Turkey most notably, and Russia. Um, didn't play by the rules, played fast and loose with the rules, found himself in the other, the wrong end of several investigations as a result, and is obsessively conspiratorial um, to, a, to a point of mania. And always has been. So what? What uh, did he do? Let's let's right. Now so tell he affixed his did. name. He affixed his name to a uh, an open letter, uh, calling very explicitly for the president to invoke whatever the heck limited martial law is. Um, I think pretty martial law seems a pretty binary condition to me. Um, but invoke that in order to have a, a new mm-hmm. election. Call a new election that he would presumably prevail in. Um, because you would suspend just about all, every aspect of rule of law in this country. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's weird, you know, justifications for, for this policy, but the bottom line is to execute a literal coup. I mean, the kind of, everybody talks about, you know, this is a coup. A coup involves the military. Um, it's an extra legal process. That's exactly what he's calling for here. It's, it's unpatriotic and un-American. And it's not the first time that he's been guilty of those two things. I uh, I agree completely. I I I think that uh, the pardon of Flynn, going back to pardons, was justified. That he was pursued for political reasons. That he was sandbagged and railroaded and kind of put in a position where he had to plead guilty uh, in order to spare his son, among other things, for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And we know from the in, uh, remarkable reporting of Eli Lake in our magazine, among other places, that. Um, that the you know central charge against him, which was that he was that he had acted in an unauthorized fashion, talking to the Russian ambassador, uh, and then lied about it, was simply not true, and that and that in fact the recommendation at the Justice Department prior to some other machinations was that they should drop the investigation into him uh, in at the beginning of January in 2017. So. Um, that was a justified pardon, um, but yeah, he's garbage. He's garbage, and that's all. And there there's quite a it. few people on the right who have succumbed to the to temptations, financial or otherwise, to um, lend themselves to America's adversaries to badmouth the country. Um, the propaganda network RT used to be called Russia Today, is now called RT. Just so you know, you know, you don't know what the real source of this sort of thing is. Is a Kremlin-funded institution, and Mike Flynn was very much a part of that for quite a long time, where he would lend himself to this to this organization, where he would badmouth the Obama administration and the policies of the Obama administration to advance a, a pro-Kremlin narrative, and took a lot of money as a result of that, and didn't disclose that money, um, which lent, which was one of the first problems that people had with his uh, being tapped to to serve as NSA, among others, notably his undisclosed financial ties to Turkey as a consultant, um, but broadly. He's not alone in that temptation. There's something on the right that um, that cons- that has allowed for, and you know, there's there's a, there's liberals on that network too. Like Bill Schultz used to be an MSNBC guy who's on that network. But there's plenty of conservatives, and there the the whole temptation there seems to be that you just get to spout off and really badmouth the administration, or whatever the administration happens to be, even though you're doing you're providing aid and comfort to an adversary of the united states i i I find that completely unconscionable i wouldn't go so far as to call it treason because it has nothing to do with military conflict nevertheless it it is disloyal yeah yeah it was disloyal and he did it because he got fired he got fired by obama and he hated being fired and so therefore it was okay for him to then peddle his wares to turkey and russia both of whom were antagonistic toward the United States. And it's also worth noting that uh, one of the things that he was involved with in Turkey was an effort to uh, convince, uh, to to talk people into repatriating uh, uh, a hostile critic of the Turkish regime, uh, the the cleric Gulen, who lives in, in Pennsylvania, to somehow uh, extra, somehow get him extricated from Pennsylvania and sent to Turkey where of course he would be killed uh, on the, on the spurious grounds that he was somehow fomenting a coup against Erdogan or, you know, or whatever uh, because he was a critic. So that was, that's really great. 
So uh, they're covering their heads in glory. Uh, uh, Trump's, um, you know, uh, Trump's most profound, uh, I don't know what you would call them. I mean, they're not supporters. They're more like his um, his royal train, you know. Uh, henchmen. And, you can uh, say henchmen. Henchmen, whatever. Anyway, it's... Um, it's 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 uh, it's really startling. So with that, we will bid you adieu for another day and come back to you tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.